house was underground. Welcome to the Fireside Podcast, where our mission is to create good kingdom culture, equip the church, and glorify God. I'm Jeremiah. Houston and Clayton are contributing to the well-being of their household by valiantly enduring their day jobs. They will be missed a little. On this episode, I will be interviewing one of the best storytellers I know. The About Me from his website is a better introduction than I could provide, so here it is. Lancelot Schaubert is the husband of Tara Schaubert, the grooviest girl on earth. He has sold his written work to markets like The New Haven Review, McSweeney's, The Poet's Market, Writer's Digest, Magazine and Books, the World Series edition of Poker Pro, Encounter, The Mystery Review, Carnival, Brink, and many other similar markets. He reinvented the photo novel through Cold Brood and was commissioned by the Missouri Tourism Board to create a second photo novel, The Joplin Undercurrent, that both fictionalizes and enchants the history and culture of Joplin, Missouri. His work terraforms new worlds, tears the veil between the natural and supernatural, and jests with the paradoxes of classical metaphysics. When he's not writing or tinkering with cinema-ish narratives, He's dabbling in dozens of different books, listening to people tell their life stories, camping, fishing, exploring unfamiliar territory, there's a lot in New York, tinkering with new languages, Spanish currently, exploring random disciplines like chemical engineering, as well as messing around with improv comedy and leisure domain and music. Please send soup. He loves soup. Yes, even if it's summer. Find him in Brooklyn, New York with his wife Tara and their attack spaniel Echo. This episode will be the first of two, the first being a more comprehensive introduction and discussion about narrative and story, and the second, a casual reading of the first chapter of Lance's new book that triggers an interesting discussion about curse words. We will also hear a couple of songs that Lance recorded live for us, sprinkled throughout these episodes. Once again, welcome to the Fireside Podcast. We hope you enjoy. I am a How'd the fire get in this freezer? And we're here with Lance Chaubert. Show, Chaubert. Well, it kind of depends on where you're sure. at in the country. <laughs> My mom hears this, she'll be like, it was pronounced Chaubert your whole life. <laughs> but in the East Coast, they pronounce it Chaubert because that's easiest for their tongue. And uh, uh, Schubert is one of my relatives so a lot of people pronounce it that way and when they like telemarketers like that's how they'll pronounce it germans it's like schaubert <laughs> i can't even do it right it was the swedes you know right right so and then uh you know i had a bunch of bullies in uh, grade school call me sherbert so all right well i'm sorry that i used that as one of the options a minute ago sherbert uh yeah well it's all right <laughs> i am kind of tasty so i hear uh, well, from my wife hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, we appreciate you being here and sure, uh, man. doing this for us. This is awesome. Uh, so Lance and I are actually here at Ozark Christian College this week um, serving at the Creative Arts Academy. It's a brand new thing. We, we talked a little bit about this last night with Jeff and how it's just been a really cool experience to be able to, you know, help these students hone their craft um, in the creative arts. And um, that way they can be better equipped when they go back to the churches. And um, so, Lance, you're here doing a storytelling track. Yes, uh, you want to yeah. kind of talk a little bit more about kind of what you've been doing this week? and Sure. Yeah. And I, th- I think we'll talk about a, a bit of more about this in a little bit. Right, right. We had two, two, two things that I participated in. One was kind of the morning sessions, and then one was a keynote. In the morning, um, 
we, I'm kind of biased, but every art we make is informed by thinking for ourselves, writing for ourselves, and speaking for ourselves, or what the teachers of Trivium call logic, rhetoric, and grammar, and that, that forms the foundation of everything else that comes after that. So that means that narrative informs all of the other disciplines. Um, and that sounds cocky, but it's but it's true. You know, every song is is telling some sort of tale. You know, every every picture. You know, we say pictures have say a thousand words is a reason we say that. I mean, they mean things. So do paintings, um, films. You know, even set design. You know, we our entire wedding was based on um, the symbol system of literary alchemy. Hmm. Um, so Mary Green uh, was fading in colors in and out. She was creating large arcs on the stage. We've had like set changes and stuff in the midst of our wedding. It was, there's a blog post on it from like way back on my side. It's called how we had a nerdy wedding without wearing chain mail. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so yeah. So even set design, you know, is telling stories. So, um, so in the first day we talked about what is art in the morning and this is to all the students, all of them get to be brainwashed by me for five days. <laughs> uh, what is art, uh, in the end, um, pulling from, um, Robert McKee here, but he says it's about story. It's true about all art, uh, that art first demonstrates and then it proves the point without explaining it. So at a Christian college, it's how you preach without preaching. Hmm. Um, we talked a little bit about that on Wednesday night. Um, we we're talking about making Jesus culture because the Dominican monks, uh, they had a school of preaching, um, where they would teach you exegesis and then they would teach you uh, theology, and then when it came time to communicate that message, they would uh, kind of give you a survey of the whole field, and then whatever you got good at, that's what you stuck with. So, um, so when St. Francis said, you know, um, preach the gospel always and when necessary, only use words when necessary, he, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying just like, help old ladies across the street, mm. you know, like that, that's true. He would have assumed that that's a piece of it, but he was also, it was a sacramental mindset of, no, you can preach through all of these other mediums. And, um, some artists would like take offense of that, but I always laugh because all art has a point. My art has no point. Well, that's, that's a really good point you're trying to make there, you know, right. You know, it start. I kind of uh, when we were at Crystal Bridges, we took the students to Crystal Bridges on on Wednesday, and I, and I sat them down during lunch to explain and kind of how to encounter art in a museum. And and I referenced David Bentley Hart's uh, The Perfect Game, and it kind of painted this picture of a baseball diamond. So it starts at a specific point, kind of like the home plate, and then it radiates out into infinity. Uh, you know, fair territory is infinite in a baseball field. It, you know, once it crosses a certain foot threshold, it's a home run. And right. it just kind of, the baseball literally disappears the game stops. There's no clock. You know, you have to get a new baseball. So um, art is like that. It starts at a point, and the fair territory in terms of interpretation is infinite. But if you think of a baseball field, about three-fourths of the things you could say about uh, meaning or, you know, or foul territory, in other words, is false. Mm. Uh, so there are wrong answers, but it starts with author's intended meaning, and then it moves out. Uh, further up and further into God. So, uh, so I mean, that's kind of, you know, $10 answer to a two-cent question. But, right. but it's 
the the reason that's important is because uh, it's important to know what you're trying to say and say exactly that in your art. So we start, you know, uh, it first demonstrates and then it proves the point without explaining it. And then uh, and the, and these Dominicans who taught that, you know, they they mentored Michelangelo, they make, mentored Raphael, um, you know, and 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 we look at I look at kind of my alma mater, which I love and am deeply indebted to. Uh, but we focus when we, when it comes to communicating the things that we have exegeted and the theology that we've studied. Um, generally, we focus on oratory, which is great. You know, I'm a bachelor in preaching. I love oration. I love good speeches. But my question is, other than preachers, when was the last time you went to a professional orator? Hmm. So we're using um, a medium that's heyday was the 19th century to try to communicate to people who are living in the 21st. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't exegete the way you do, don't, don't use theology. I'm just saying you're literally falling on deaf ears because they don't hear that anymore. Right. Um, so what about the eyes? What about the nose? What about the, uh, the mouth, the hands, the touch, spatial awareness, time, space, those sorts of things? Um, so there are, there are all these human signal systems we're not using. We're just using the tongue and the ears. Right. right. Um, and only in a very specific way. You know, heaven forbid we, we branch out into narrative, comedy uh, sketches, you know, poetry. Right. Which isn't dead. It's just certain forms of poetry are dead. Um, I go to hip-hop freestyle night in New York every other week, you know. Hamilton's poetry, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, uh, so anyone that tells you poetry is dead is just not paying attention. Right. Um, so yeah, so all of that to say, you know, to get them to think about the the points they're trying to make, and then we went into story. What is a story? And a story. Uh, Dan Harmon kind of summarizes this up in a neat little graphic. It's a one sentence um, phrase, which is that. Um, in a story, the protagonist or the audience uh, through the protagonist uh, or the reader through the protagonist. In a story, um, the protagonist, this character, is in a zone of comfort. They have something that's comfortable, status quo, but they want something. And so there's that contrast at the start between uh, what Stephen, King's call, Stephen King calls my Dionysian comfort and my Apollonian ideal, right? Dionysus and Apollo. Um, between my addictions and my aspirations, between what Stephen Pressfield calls my resistance and my professionalism, my goals. Um, so zone of comfort, but they want something. There's that contrast right at the start. So they enter, because of that, they enter an unfamiliar situation. They actually leave their zone of comfort, go into an unfamiliar situation, adapt to that unfamiliar situation, get what they want, but it costs them something dear. And that dear thing is typically connected uh, to their comfort. And then they return having changed. And the change is the most important part of the story. Um, so yeah, they get what they want or they don't and they return having changed. The, the having changed, that, that comfort that they had at the beginning. So like eating an entire sleeve of Oreos. Well, the Oreos isn't the point. I'm eating an entire sleeve of Oreos because uh, my dad told me I'd never be skinny enough when I was growing up. So what's actually important is what's behind that comfort. What was that moment of misbelief back before the story started, that right. trauma? The story behind the story. Exactly. And that's the thing we try to focus on. That, that's, you, don't need, you don't really need a big exhaustive outline. What you need to know is what came first. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this week, the students uh, kind of collaborated to write some of this backstory together. And they came up with, uh, they, they were goofing off a little bit, but by the end, they, they owned it. Uh, a 12-year-old female uh, named Gertrude, <laughs> which they called Tude because she has an attitude, who is a professional juggler. That was her occupation, but everyone else hates her juggling because they think it's, you know, they kind of scoff at her, both her name and her juggling. Particularly her dad does. Hmm. Um, and her dad does uh, because her trauma in the past was that her mom was actually a carny. <laughs> but dad was this kind of engineer um, accountant type uh, who married uh, her mom um, because she was kind of this gypsy personality that really got him out of his out of out of his own comfort. But she tried this trick and died in it, and so now he's become super super protective of his daughter. That's backstory, hmm. right? So that's trauma. Uh, her comfort. So Gertrude's comfort is that she wants people to approve of her juggling. She likes it when people enjoy it. Doesn't like it when they hate it. But what does she want? She wants to be able to do the trick her mom did. Mm. And so now there's this immediate conflict between where she uh, wants to go and where she is. And the person in the way is her dad. Now, her dad's not the villain. Uh, a lot of the kids wrote, uh, students, sorry, wrote stories in which dad isn't the villain. Uh, he's just someone who really, really cares because he's got his own thing going too, right? We right. could do this whole thing for him. For him, the thing that he wants is to make sure that uh, his family is, um, he wants to preserve his daughter's life because she's the only thing left of his mom, mm. of her, her, her mom. Right. Right. But, but the thing, um, thing about that is, is why does he want that? Well, because in his trauma, his wife called him out of his comfort. Right. And so he actually needs, in, in this particular conflict, he needs his daughter to be able to do this well, even though he doesn't realize that. Because, um, because the moment she does that, he's going to be called out of himself and have exactly what he had in the first place with his wife. Um, but that goes completely against everything that, that he preserves. So, so yeah, so, so you have, you see how it's starting to work here. Um, uh, and it know, almost has so, gospel truths, you know, exactly. It, you know, yeah. With the whole countercultural narrative of Jesus. Sure. It would just courage. Right, yeah, right. exactly. And that's, that's kind of what we got to at the right. end is she can, here's the beautiful thing. She can succeed or fail and both of them can still change. And that's the important part. Mm -hmm. The important part is, is how you prove a point and demonstrate and prove a point without explaining it. And therefore, how do they return having changed? Uh, the daughter might die in this attempt and still on her like dying breath, the last thoughts going through her mind can be the fact that it was good enough to try to do the thing she was made to do mm. um, in the teeth of hatred and safety. And, and her dad, can he can watch his daughter die and realize in the last moment that he should have actually backed her up in it, that the way to make her safe wasn't from keeping her from doing the trip, but to enable her to do the trick well. Mm. Um, so she can even fail. Uh, you know, Hamlet failed pretty miserably. He failed so colossally, the entire family died. You know, like uh, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet failed. And anyone that tells you that's a romance is, is not paying attention to actually what's going on. You know, it's an entire civil war in a small town because of two teenagers not being able to cool it, cool the jets a little right, bit, you right. know, um, you know, little miss sunshine failed. Melancholia is, is global failure. It's the, it's uh, literally another planet colliding into ours. Um, and yet change still happens. And, and that's what it is. It's about the measuring of change and how, uh, 
I mean, you know, we, we use this kind of as a survival trait for, for centuries and centuries to learn when debates aren't working, mm. when people shouting at each other isn't working, when trying to convince someone isn't working. We use narrative because it, it kind of just smuggles thought, you know? So yeah, so we did that. What is art? What is story? And then we added a little bit of genre, you know, um, you know, whether fantasy, romance, historical, whatever. And basically the whole point is to get them in a discipline of writing a page a day, because if they do that, by this time next year, they'll have a 90,000 word novel or a five act symphony, you know, because that's about 60 bars of music, 60 measures, um, 117 different poetry compilations, depending on how they break that up. I mean, a photograph a day is a lot, you know? So just regular output. And by that, by that point in the week, they were kind of like, <laughs> Why, I'm a musician. Why do I need to know this? Why does this matter? And so we took all of this backstory we'd written about courage and about this kind of juggling family, this family wrestling with dangerous juggling, and then had them turn it into their medium. So we had students making raps and we had students uh, drawing a scene study for a painting and those sorts of things based on this meaning that we had kind of constructed together. Right. Um, and again, it's, it's that point we start with, but it kind of radiates out. And they ended up all over the map with the ways they ended up, you know, same story, same, same, same story elements, same, you know, inciting incident, went all, all kinds of places with it. And then today we took that and applied it to, to their testimony. And that was the last day. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, people, have you ever heard anyone say like, I have a boring testimony. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like all the time. All the time. Yeah. Um, so I don't actually like believe in that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. <laughs> you know, what I mean, like it's like, well, either you're a religious hypocrite who doesn't realize that you need saving, doesn't realize the depth of your own depravity. Mm. Uh, and I'm not a I'm not a Calvinist, you know. I'm not a I'm not a total depravity guy, but I am. I do believe that we are sufficiently depraved, <laughs> you know. Like I do, I do believe that we're screwed up enough that we will break things and kill them, um, whether they be small, furry woodland creatures or marriages, you know. Um, so we are sufficiently depraved, and so typically religious people need to r- realize how much they've been saved from. But sometimes what's actually happening is someone realizes how much they're saved, they just don't have a way to communicate it. Right. So you take that same thing, overlay it on your story, um, your own personal life story. Like, okay, so so how was Jeremiah in a zone of comfort before he met Jesus? You know? Yeah. What did he want? Deep down, what did he want? And how did he seek things that, that he thought would fill those things but weren't? And so how did seeking those things put him in a zone of comfort, or, or sorry, put him uh, in an unfamiliar situation, call him out of himself? And then how did, he have to, how did Jeremiah have to adapt? And what did it cost him? A lot of times that adaptation is actually a moment of baptism, uh, things like that, like conversion experiences for us in our testimony. How did it, how did it, what did it cost him? And then how did he return having changed? Getting what he wanted, uh, but finding it in a source he didn't expect. And that's that's typically how story works. It gives the reader what they want, but not in the way they expect. Right. So have you ever seen Jaws? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while, so, but I've seen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So so Jaws is a great example because Jaws is it's just really clean. Like at the start of the film, uh, there's a shark attack, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have this cop kind of saddle up onto the, onto the beach 
with a giant gun in his hip and you're like, oh man, like, what do you think? Like, I want to see that cop shoot that shark, <laughs> right. right? Like, that's what you think immediately. Like, I, I don't know how this is going to happen. That's what I want. By the end of the film, you don't expect the shark to be the size of a Metropolitan Transit Authority bus, mm -hmm. like half the size of the little boat they're using, right? <laughs> right? And you definitely don't expect him to shoot an air tank into its mouth and then blow it up. <laughs> But we still got a cop shooting a shark, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of how stories work. And that's how our testimony works, you know? Um, and just enabling people to do that. That's kind of what we did. And then, and then kind of tied all that together, some of the things I mentioned on Wednesday night for making Jesus culture, which is, which is just to say making a culture that's more bright, beautiful, mm. loves the poor, um, making culture that is kinder, more self-controlled. Um, and that involves, you know, every sector of society and just refusing to conform and being willing to get into trouble for making beautiful things and those sorts of things. So, yeah, that's that's the uh, 50,000 foot version of the week. <laughs> that's great. I mean, it's good to, to hear that. And yeah, uh, I mean, here at the Fireside, we're a huge proponent for story in general and just mm -hmm. like how our stories interact with the story of Christ. Sure. And so, you know, this whole process that you're talking about, you know, where the kids were able to develop the story sure. and then see, you know, how that, that story actually has similarities to their own story, sure. um, which allows, you know, the story of Christ to come into their lives as well through that. Mm. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's really good stuff. Thank you for sharing good. that. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, so I guess talk a little bit about like, you know, what you do uh, for a living. I mean, obviously you, you write. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I think we can kind of pick that up right now. But uh, sure. uh, so you're in New York. Um, so, yeah, just just talk about that. Talk about like um, maybe even just like a culture shift for you. Uh, how, that, <laughs> how that was from like Joplin to, oh. to New York and then, uh, you know, what you're doing out there. And uh, um, yeah. yeah. So, so, well, uh what we do and how we make money are kind of different. Right, <laughs> like right. We've gotten almost to where we'll ask New Yorkers, what do you love? Mm. Um, because that's kind of the way they operate. Um, so as far as how I filed my taxes this year, we actually had, I think, seven or eight sources of income. Mm. Um, so we had income from Tara's business, which is knitting and selling things um, from a part-time job she does with nannying, from a part-time job she does with... Um, helping a designer make organic crib sheets. Hmm. Um, I was an actor on Netflix last year. I was just an extra. It wasn't a, you, it, it, I'll be impressed if you can find me, but, <laughs> but, um, we did that. Um, you know, obviously my writing generates income. It's generating a little less right now. It, it had doubled every year, um, for several years. And then I stopped doing copywriting intentionally to move further into culture creation. Mm. Um, so it's dipped a little bit and then it's gonna, you know, I expect that kind of retraction as I lay the foundation for what's what's coming. Um, and a little bit of like some photo novel filmmaking stuff in there. Um, and then, I don't know, there's other stuff, some speaking stuff. And then, and then the big, the bulk of it is that we are on um, pretty much full-time support um, from individuals giving, you know, 25, 40 bucks a month 
to enable us to uh, first befriend and then disciple and then commission creatives in New York City to make Jesus culture. So what we did this week, what I taught this week, is is what we've done. We did right. in Joplin, and then and then we really took it and kicked it into high gear in New York. So. Um, you know, um, Mark Neinschwander, Jeff, and I were all part of a thing about 10 or more years ago called the Limner Society. Started out as a handful of people. Um, some of the people that came out of that were instrumental in Third Thursday and the upcoming uh, Porch Fest and all sorts of different things that have come out of Joplin culture that people would say, yeah, it's cool that we have these things. Behind the scenes are these artists making right. these things happen. Um, so we, we just, we really gravitate toward those people because uh, on the one hand um, society only has three categories for art- artists which is starving <laughs> uh, sellout and celebrity um, and we uh, I think that's in- insufficient and I think it's um, I think it's inappropriate um, so we try to enter into there and, and call people to make what they were really called to make and, and enable them to do that through uh, business training and through uh, financial resources sometimes and, and just encouragement, some of this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly Teaching. what we're wanting to do with, sure. with this, too, is just like an online community that's sure. pretty much trying to do that exact same thing, just help yeah. people get their work out there and help support them in that. And Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's really awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. So we, we do that. And then... Uh, um, so we just took that and started some more artist groups in the city. Uh, a lot of times we focus, uh, when we moved to New York, we just, this was kind of Crystal Walton Wade Landers, you know, encouragement that brought this about, but they, they had us collect just dozens and dozens, maybe, maybe hundreds of names of people we got a, a hold of. And, and New York has a 50% transience. So half the city is different every year, hmm. um, which is kind of hard to fathom. You know, looking at your neighbors and knowing that half of them won't be the same next year. Right. Um, but it but it does. It's it's uh, you have gentrification, uh, you have immigration, you have people climbing up the career ladder so they move in. You have the commuters that uh, E.B. White said treat the city like locusts hmm. every day. Um, then you have uh, people who kind of make it and then they become bi-coastal or tri-coastal or quad-coastal between New York, L.A. and the Hamptons and South France. Um, you have people that get pushed to the outsides, just the poor. Um, obviously, death is a piece of it. You know, all sorts of stuff. Deportation is part of it. Um, so when you actually get down to like, if that's happening every single year, who are the pillars of the neighborhood? You know what I mean? Um, so we try to find people that have been there around eight years or more, people that own businesses, people that uh, own property, people that maybe they don't own property, maybe they're homeless, but they've been homeless at this subway stop for, you know, like that kind of consistency and stability. And we befriended them. And, um, and then among them, we try to find nonconformists, which are people who are willing to fight for good ideas, Mm -hmm. people who are willing to create good ideas, even when everyone's making fun of them. Um, and these are the people we work with in Joplin. And the reason we do this is because churches and organizations and businesses all the time say they want to change the world. In fact, that phrase didn't really exist much, uh, you know, 300 years ago. It's especially in book titles. Uh, it's all over the place now. People say, I want to change the world. But the funny thing is, is if you actually look at the stats of like the kids like that are here, students 
who are most likely to change the world. They are least likely to be teacher's pets. They're most likely to be bullied or made fun of by their youth minister. Um, They are always on the outskirts. Um, So literally you have businesses, organizations, and churches say we want to change the world change the world and then the person who, the people who are most likely to change it statistically are also the most likely to be ousted by those organizations so we just go to where they are you know we go into the margins with the mirk stapa line that um, makoto fujimura uses in culture care you know that word that old english word that means border stalker we go to the borders you know we leave these big institutions and we go out and we find where they're gathering we kind of call them to assemble in the midst of kind of their nomadic gypsy uh thing you know and then we say the sector you're in is great you're in healthcare, great you're in education great we're not asking you to leave your sector what we're asking you to do is the thing that's deep down inside you if you're a fashion stylist great but you want to write a novel and make a film let's talk more about that because that's actually the key to changing the institution you're a part of that's actually the key to um, causing ripple effects in the culture and people are going to make fun of you for it and they're going to be naysayers and they're going to um, I still I still get made fun of I had a, I had a uh, really close friend a couple weeks ago make fun of me for wanting to do a project that was outside of what he considered my wheelhouse um, so do I listen to that or do I make something beautiful and just make a contribution just because it's sufficient to make something that's inside my soul? Right. You know, and, and it's not for your own glory. It's for. Yeah, no. For yeah. Like, like what? Who's Lance Schauber? Right, that that right. name is going. That name is if it ever got famous, it would it would fade easily in two, three generations. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the effect we measure is, you know, organizations, if they're planning at all, talk about their 50-year plan. That's just two and a half generations. I mean, Ozark is always three bad freshman enrollments away for every college. It's three bad freshman enrollments away from closing its doors. Any church is three generations away from not having a pulpit to fill. Right. So we are kind of hopscotching around that asking, okay, what's our 270-year plan? Hmm. What's our 300-year plan? Uh, how will our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren measure, that? that's seven generations, how will they measure uh, the culture we've made and the, and the civilization that we live in? How, and, you know, the Jeremiah 29 thing, how do we measure the, uh, the beauty in the city? Have we lived good lives? Have we built beautiful families? Have we uh, taken really good care of the culture? And a lot of times the answer is no. A lot of times the answer is no, we didn't. Uh, and churches love using artists. And I mean that in the, in the sickest form of the term, like usury. They love taking artists and just taking their worth for free. And a lot of artists are so emotionally needy that they're willing to do the starving artist thing. They're willing to give away graphic design. They're willing to give away films. They're willing to give away the stuff. And I understand, yeah, you need to serve. But here's the thing. Uh, we pay our preachers. Right. You know, we pay all kinds of other people. And, and a lot of people we pay, they're not actually working as hard as some of the artists I know. Hmm. Uh, now, are they lazy artists? Yes. But... They're lazy, everything. There are all kinds of people that are comfortable in their jobs and, and just taking a paycheck and going home or whatever. So we are trying to push churches and then uh, organizations do the same thing. Nonprofits are the worst about this. Parachurch or outside Christianity are the absolute worst about 
using art simply to objectify stories and human beings instead of actually liberating artists to mm. make beautiful things. You know, it's they basically turn into propaganda machines. Uh, and you'll see this, the, the, the best way to look at this is actually to see how corporations have done it, which is that third thing, which is um, like Benjamin Moore, you know, hiring a filmmaker friend of mine. To, he did a great job in spite of them, but they, they hired him to make a documentary about small towns that's whole point at the end of it was to sell paint. Hmm. And they ended up, I mean, they did Joplin. Joplin was one of the cities featured and they painted all downtown. They gave away free paint, but that was the whole point of the documentary was, aren't we great? Yeah. And uh, Chesterton in Utopia of Usurers talks about this. And he says, if the capitalist is allowed to succeed, uh, the problem is that there won't be, uh, is that there won't be any good art. It's that there won't be any art that is not simultaneously advertisement. And that's a considerable step lower. Uh, when your job isn't even to promote a kingdom or the church or Christ's kingdom uh, above both of those. Your point isn't to draw people out of themselves to experience wonder and beauty. Your job is to just in, further enrich a businessman or objectify the story of, of some poor kid to further enrich the CEO of a nonprofit who's making high six figures on poverty relief. Uh, your job is is just to make sure that a specific church can get more bodies, bucks, and baptisms, which is an insufficient measure of the church's work in the world. Right. So we're asking, how can you look at the people who are pushed to the fringes, who are tired of getting used, and how can you actually say, here's five grand, go make a film? Well, you can't do that. Well, you do it with people who communicate orally all the time. You, you pay them to communicate orally. So what, what's happening there? What's happening is we favor one medium over all these other ones, uh, and we don't trust the art to do its work. We would rather explain our points. We don't believe that we can actually demonstrate and prove points without explaining them. And that's why the world's winning. Yeah. Because they get it, and they've moved on, and they're making all kinds of things. Some of them are ugly, um, but true, and... Uh, uh, and sometimes churches do this, like with the movie Fireproof. You yeah, know? yeah. True. We yes. talk about God's not dead. You know. You yeah. Or what? Yeah. Something. Is it true? Yeah, it's true. But it's ugly. It's right. butt ugly. You know. Um, it's really good at a small group resource, but a, a small group resource is not a film. <laughs> like that's not the same thing. Um, it's just a different medium. So. Yeah. Um, or on the other hand, they make something incredibly beautiful, but it's false. Mm. You know, and there's plenty of paintings like that hanging in the Museum of Modern Art. So what would it look like to actually go to someone and say, hey, here's five grand, go write a symphony. Well, we can't do that because what if they don't finish their work? Well, what if, you know how many preachers sit on their butts all week long and don't do the hard chair work of study? I was a part of a church not too long ago where, where I, did, I did all this research, consolidated it down to eight pages, and they told me it was too much after they kicked me off a teaching team. I mean, like, I, I just don't buy that. You know, what, what you really mean is we're scared. Hmm. That's okay to be scared, but all good stories start that way, right? Right. So we're in a zone of comfort, which is not enabling artists. And yet we want something, which is to change the world and change the culture. And they're the key to do it. So they, the unfamiliar situation we need to enter is to commission and empower these artists, these artistic ministry specialists is what ACT International, my, my forwarding agency, calls them. We need to empower them 
to actually go out and make, make the culture a better place. And that'll cause us to adapt. That might mean there's a season of the church in the next 500 years in which we have a hard time filling pulpits. Mm. But that's the trajectory we're headed towards anyway. So right. why not actually hopscotch around that preparing for the future? Uh, what's the cost? The cost is church might not look like church looks like right now. But when has that ever not been the case in church history? Mm. So that might be the price. And we'll return having change. What's the change? The culture. We've actually grown the church. And we've done what the Middle Age church, the churches in the Middle Ages did, which is make culture that has stood for a thousand years. Right. You know? And that was after the fall of Rome. You know, that was after the fall of an empire. Uh, so I actually am very hopeful for the future. That's kind of, that's, you know, that's what we do in the city. And what we did in, in Joplin, and it's what I'm going to keep doing until people either put me in prison or, or yeah. make it happen. So, <laughs> well, awesome. Yeah, I mean this this whole idea of uh, you know the nonconformists, and uh, I mean really like it's it's just what Jesus did in his ministry. He sure. went out into the city and you know found those that were marginalized, and yeah. you know I mean I would consider Jesus's art his miracles, right? Like sure. Like that's what brought beauty in, into the places of, of darkness, you know. And sure. Um, so you know, he's there in the city, and he's and he's making you know people stand up that weren't able to walk before, right. you know. And people are, are seeing again, and um, you know, giving these um, qualities back to them that they're able to now view the world in a different different lens, or yeah. like um, actually be able to you know travel now and see the world in oh, different sure. ways, you know, like. Uh, yeah, when a miracle actually happens, it's like there's not like a a light and a halo. It's not like it's not like X Men. There's not like this three sixty <laughs> VR camera that's like doo, 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 doo. you know. It's just like did that eye guy's arm just like grow back? You know, it's really disturbing because of how real it actually is. Right. Like the word supernatural. It's it's so natural. It's creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, since yeah. we're in such an aesthetic culture now, like having art as the medium, like, you know, all these different mediums of art, having those available sure. and being able to attack the senses in that way, like, sure. uh, I mean, yeah, we, <laughs> the church would definitely benefit from that. Um, yeah. And I, I think, I think there might be somewhat of a resurgence. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a, a definite, you know, a shift a little bit moving towards that way. Uh, maybe not in a, you know, a fast-paced way as we'd like it to, but sure. uh, I think I think people are starting to get it a little bit. Um, well, they I mean, they certainly have gotten to the point where they admit what we're doing isn't working. Right. right. Um, and it's helped that so many tools have been kind of democratized. They've been it's gotten cheaper mm-hmm. to, to make some things. Uh, so that helps because there's just more people trying stuff in their hobbies and making things, selling stuff right. on Etsy or whatever. So that, that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I just want it to happen so bad that I'm like just convincing myself that it's making a shift. Um, but I mean, you know, podcasts are popping up all over the place. People are, um, you know, using animation in different ways to do, um, you know, like devotional content and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're trying to use these different mediums to, to bridge gaps now. And, you know, it's, it's cool. I mean, there's just so much available to us now. Yeah. And I think that's the, I think that's the trick is as we move forward, one, uh, empowering people to do it well, mm-hmm. not to make a lot. Well, not. I gotta be careful. Yes, uh, to empower them to to do consistent output, but from that consistent, large, prolific 
base of like what they're building to be able to look at a handful of things they made and and put resources behind them to promote those things or to make them better. Um, and then on the other side, uh, for the artist and for the and for the reader or the audience uh, to do it reflectively. Mm. Um, problem, we will not have a want of information moving forward. <laughs> you know, right? We're not going to like run out of data moving forward. <laughs> Uh, and I don't use the word content because content is the word I used as a copywriter when I was selling stuff. I use the word substance. Um, yeah, you've been growing that in me already. Like, yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel myself making that shift too. And that, it's an important distinction because content, uh, you know, what's the fat content of this burrito? Hmm. You know, content just means stuff we put in there. Substance has uh, discipline and focus put around it, and um, if you want to make content, that's fine. But the, I mean, yeah, can I get paid two dollars a word to write ad copy? Yeah, I can. But if the whole point of my art, art again, is to just enrich the businessman, then what's the point of art anymore? You know. Right. So, um, so, and again, all due respect to you know my friends who are who are still copywriting or or doing graphic design for companies and things like that. I I, I get that. I understand you have to feed your families, and and I suppose um, feeding your family through through making something is better than feeding your family through tearing something down. Right. Um, but I'm gonna keep pushing as hard as I can towards the right side of the bell curve because I think that'll bring everyone else along in the long term, you know? Whether that's a group of nerdy high schoolers in, you know, middle California in the late, you know, in the 80s or 70s, just tinkering with computer parts and suddenly out of their community comes Silicon Valley, or whether that's a bunch of guys that leave crack dealing in the Brooklyn Marcy, you know, housing projects um, and come together to make rap and turn out to be Def Jam Records. You know, I'm going to push, push people to start making communities where they make things that are higher and, and better than what they could imagine. So, yeah, I think, I think that's important. And I think, um, you know, I think it's important, like I said, reflection. Uh, I was talking to Mark Proctor about this um, on the bus. He, you know, it's important. <laughs> Samuel Taylor Coolridge uh, informed a lot of the Inklings and a lot of the guys that came before the Inklings, like Chesterton, um, but also Lewis Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, uh, you know, Charles Williams. Uh, he, and he said uh, in his Aids to Reflection, if you are not a thinking man, to what measure are you a man at all? Mm. Or if, you, uh, if you're not a thinking woman, to what measure are you a woman at all? Which is to say that, that reason and language, how we communicate with one another and think thoughts that are beyond our meat sack, you know, is what makes us human, what brings together community. So that doesn't mean that you need to be crazy well-read. It doesn't mean that you need to, like, be a philosopher. It doesn't need, mean you need to know the point of reading a book and, and thinking a clear thought. Right. You know, common sense assumes you use it. You know, you have people all the time, like, can you read? Yeah, I know how to read. Well, do you? You know? Mark Twain said the man who has the capacity to read great books and does not has no advantage over the man who can't. And I think of people all the time that just burning through their feed or, or whatever, just like, hold on, like, pick one of these and let it in our deeply for a little bit. 
And I think that's going to be, you know, the substance in terms of thinking deeply about what we're making and then also reflection, thinking deeply about what we've consumed. Uh, it's going to be really important moving forward, especially as, you know, we fill the entire earth with sensors and everything else. So. If you would like to hear more, Lance is hosting a digital summit in September on just this subject called Make Jesus Culture. If you go to Eventbrite and search Make Jesus Culture, the first 30 people get in for free. Thank you for listening. Tune back for episode two. The inkwell of a scrivener.